Welcome to another episode of Million Dollar Stories, where we get to interview authors from all over the world. Uh, I love my job because I get, I get to interview experts on subjects that I really don't know much about, but I'm just fascinated with. And uh, recently, if you've been listening, we just broke 100 episodes, and uh, there are a few who are experts in the Chinese economy and Chinese history, not so much when it comes to Japan. And so that is why our guest is on today. Uh, his name is William Ferris, and he has studied this stuff extensively, and he wrote a book called Japan to 1600, A Social and Economic History. Now, before we even get started, I think we're going to get into names like, I believe, Tokugawa Ieyasu, who's the founder of the Tokugawa Shogunate, which ruled Japan for two, for over 250 years during the Edo or Edo period. And then another end of it, is it Edo? Yes, Edo. Ed Edo. And then also I'm thinking one that opened up the Japanese economy to United States economy, and that's Commodore Matthew Perry. So maybe we'll get into that, maybe not. But it is an honor to have you here, sir, uh, William Ferris. All righty. Well, let's start off with the genesis of the book. It seems like you are in this world. You study it all the time. Why did you write this book? Um, I wrote this book because... Um... First of all, uh, Japanese history before 1600 is not that well studied, uh, particularly in English. And um, there was no real good, no one really good textbook for it that summarized. There have been a lot of recent findings in uh, Japan up to 1600. And so I wrote this as kind of a textbook to be used uh, in classrooms. It's also good for the general reader who just wants to know about Japan up until 1600. Uh, and so that's really why I wrote it. Well, uh, I'm just looking at some of the big names and I just did a quick little uh, uh, research uh, on Google and try to find some big names that are relevant to Japan prior to 1600. And we're going back to Emperor Jimmu, I think, 711 to 585 BC. Uh, the first emperor of Japan. So I don't know if you go back that far, but uh, uh, I just love this type of um, th these these type of people in the in the background that you school doesn't really talk about, right? And that seems like your bread and butter. Well, um, first of all, Emperor Jimbu never existed. Uh, <laughs> really, it, it's a complete myth. No, uh, when uh, he he's only mentioned in histories that were compiled about uh it, it, about uh 700 and in those histories that were compiled in 700 the japanese were interested in backdating the origins of their dynasty as far as possible so they backdated it to someone called jimu jimu literally means divine warrior and they uh, backdated to him uh, he's supposed to have ascended the throne in 660 bce and, but he never existed, and in fact, the first uh, several first ten 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 so-called emperors that are listed in the in the annals in the histories are all made up. Amazing, and that's why you just you just never know. You don't know what's written down. You don't know what to believe, uh, and that's why it's really tough to. Uh, to kind of like make decisions about history so long ago. So it's basically a fictional character. 
Yeah, Jimmu, Jimmu is completely fictional. He was probably made up of several different composite figures. Uh, he he might have been mo modeled on the first real emperor of Japan is named Timmu, uh, the heavenly warrior emperor. And he was on the throne from 672 until 686. And he is the one who really started the dynasty. Uh, and so when they, they had to find a founding figure for it, uh, they backdated it as far as they possibly could. And they modeled it much after Tenmu. Both of them were known for their abilities to fight wars. Wow. Okay. So when it comes to Asia, very much like Sun Tzu with uh, the Chinese warrior mentality and Confucius, right? The stoic approach to things. Is he sort of like the first figurehead of em embracing the warrior mentality? Is that what you're saying? Well, he, 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 he has nothing to do with the samurai, if that's what you mean. Uh, he, he's, he's not, not a, the word for warrior in ja Japanese is samurai. Uh, it means one who attends or one who serves. And um, samurai didn't really become uh, uh, clearly present in Japanese history until after 900. So long after T Tim had died. But he was, but, but uh, Japan at the time was, uh, at the time of Timu, was fearing an attack from the Chinese. And so. Tim Wu did lay an emphasis on military affairs. Mm. Well, I know where, whenever you get closer to what the 1700s, 1800s, that's whenever we start to like understand a little bit more about Japanese culture. But what was like the major shift? Was there anything that really happened prior to 1600 that is extremely shocking that most of my audience would have no clue ever existed? Uh, let's see, what kind of major shifts? Well, one of them, uh, the, the kind of history I'm interested in is social and economic history, which deals with such things as the economy and population and less political history. But one of the major shifts was the retreat of epidemic disease. And there were terrible epidemics in Japan around the time of Temu, and these epidemics caused the population to uh, remain stable for a very long time. Japan did not grow. Uh, and it didn't really, the change didn't really come until around 1300. Mm, okay. 1300. All right. And so can you, can you go into a little bit more detail about exactly what was going on there? Well, in 1300, uh, not long after 1300, there was a great civil war in Japan. And the Civil War resulted in the foundation of the uh, Muromachi Shogunate, the, the, the Muromachi uh, warrior government uh, in uh, 1333. And this was, this was a direct precursor to the Tokugawa, which you talked about. And uh, the Muromachi had a vibrant economy. They had, they, they had money that they used. Uh, they gave loans to peasants. Uh, they were uh, quite powerful, particularly under the sh third shogun, Yoshimitsu, who, who ruled around 1400. Uh, Japan was uh, sending embassy to China and trading with Okinawa and with Korea and with China. 
And in general, from 13, the period from 1300 to 1600 links up very well with the Tokugawa period. Economically, they had a certain export from what I gathered. I, I think it has to do with silk. Is that right? Japan was known for a certain type of export for many, many generations. Is that right? Uh, not really. Uh, Japanese silk was, was of inferior grade uh, all the way up until uh, the uh 1800s and then the, then the japanese learned to make better silk and eventually their silk was better than the chinese and so that's why they're known for their silk it, it but it didn't really occur until the 1800s wow okay so prior to 1600 i, I guess the major were, were they battling with korea more than any what, what who was their biggest i guess you could say enemy or competitor or well, they were invaded twice by the Mongols. They were invaded by the Mongols in 1274 and 1281. Was that with, uh, uh, who is the, the main guy? Genghis, right? Genghis Khan? He, well, it was actually with uh, Kublai Khan. His, his, what was it, maybe his grandson? Uh, Kublai Khan was the one who invaded Japan. And he um, invaded both times, but both both attempts at invasion were failures. Wow. So they had a massive army then, J Japan at that time. Well, not really. The, the army that met the Mo the Mongol army was probably measured in the tens of thousands, if not more. The Japanese army was only about five thousand, and the first time the Mongols invaded in twelve seventy four, we don't know exactly what happened, but for whatever reason, they did not engage the Japanese and they withdrew. Then they invaded again in 1221, 1281, and in 1281 when they invaded, uh, they um, the Mongols were doing pretty well. They were conquering territory in Japan, and then a great uh, typhoon hit their fleet and destroyed their fleet, and that's the origin of the phrase kamikaze, the divine. Wow, movement. I didn't know that. That's your that's the origin of kamikaze. That's right. Wow, which obviously became very popular in World War II days, but uh, and That's so right, yeah. and was it the same philosophy where it was go to die? Uh, well, the kamikaze winds were um, uh, it was a, it was a typhoon, and it was more an accident of nature than anything else that destroyed the Mongol fleet in 1281. But later in World War II, the Japanese military, which was losing very badly at the time, decided to have their pilots crash into American ships. And of course the pilot, the Japanese pilot would be killed, but those to spur them on to do this great feat of self-sacrifice, uh, the, um, the Japanese military called them kamikaze or the divine wind. They caused a fair amount of damage on Japanese ships, but mostly it resulted in the deaths of uh, Japanese pilots. Yeah. Interesting. What is it about the Japanese culture that fascinates you the most? It seems like you really, you, you, you love studying it simply because you are fascinated or you do love the culture. Maybe you respect it in a way that you don't see a lot of the United States or the Western um, cultures uh, maybe ad adopt certain principles like they do. So it, what is it about Japan that really, really, um, you know, makes you fall in love with the culture? 
Uh, well, um, I, I first went to Japan in December of 1971, and I stayed for about a year and two months. And I've lived in Japan a total of six years. And Japan is just such a great country to live in. Uh, as one of my professors said to me, Japan is a country that you always want to go back to. Mm. And so it's, it's just that the food is good. The people are kind. Uh, if, if, if you don't speak any Japanese, I speak Japanese, of course, but if, if you don't speak any Japanese and you go to a subway stop and you're looking for a subway stop and you're kind of peering at the guide, guide maps and you don't know what to do, more than likely a Japanese will come up to you and try his English on you and try to give you help you get the right directions to where you're going. So they're kind. Their food is good. Uh, the train system is excellent. Uh, they're orderly. Uh, just uh, they're clean people. Uh, there, there's not much that you not to like about Japan. I, and and from what I gather, they're very respectful people, right? They 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 really in society they're very res respectful to each other and to outsiders coming in. Yes, that's, yes, that's right. Yes, that's, that's another thing. Very much respect outsiders, and um, sometimes they don't always understand outsiders, but um, they're respectful and they're dignified. And um, these are all generalizations, of course, and you can find exceptions. But uh, for all this reason, they uh, uh, are um, uh, people that uh, it's just really easy to be around. I, 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 if I if I had the chance, I would go back to Japan a minute. It's a little bit cold right now to go there, though. Hmm. And I know this is outside the scope of your book, but I'm assuming you still understand. I Commodore Matthew Perry, key figure in Japan's modern history, he played a role in opening Japan to the West during the Edo period. Anything you could say about that? Because is he the man that really bridged the gap between U.S. and Japan? Well, he didn't bridge the gap between the United States and Japan. Um, Perry was ordered by the United States president at the time to go to Japan. There were, first of all, uh, increasingly Japan was being beset by ships from Russia and the Netherlands and Great Britain and the United States, and all of these countries were doing whaling in the area. And so an American ship would crash, or a British ship would crash, and then um, the Japanese wouldn't, would, would not help them, would not do anything for them. Uh, and um, sometimes they were even uh, sort of held as prisoners for a while. Uh, so Perry went to open relations with Japan. And he took with him a man who was very important. His name was Townsend Harris. And Townsend Harris uh, negotiated treaties with Japan to open Japan to American trade and to American diplomacy. And that would be in 1867, really the, all the period of the 1860s and um, 1870s were opening of Japan to the outside world. Got it. Now I'm very familiar with, and I just had a guest on prior to you. Uh, it talks about how China is a manufacturing plant, but there are still many companies that we deal with that just outsource to China to do the manufacturing. How well, the money still goes to China, uh, Japan. 
once again, this might be outside of the scope of the book, but Japan is still a uh, is still a, a major powerhouse when it comes to maybe you know businesses and 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 certain mm-hmm. companies when it comes to vehicles, right? Dirt bikes, mo- motorcycles, cars. So uh, they really became known for the go-to source. Maybe in the seventies, sixties, and seventies. I'm in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. There was a movie called Gung Ho. I don't know if you've ever seen that. Oh, yes. It really did show the contrast between how Americans think and work compared to the Japanese. And uh, they became known as the no-nonsense, get it done, do it better than ever, and that became their identity. So I would assume that maybe that started either way before or that's still in them to this day. Well, um, Japan's economy uh, was already doing well when Commodore Perry came was already uh, beginning to industrialize and they had good merchant associations and so on. But when Commodore Perry came, Japan adopted a kind of state-directed capitalism. And Mm -hmm. the state-directed capitalism caused the Japanese economy to grow really quickly uh, in the latter part of the 19th century and the early part of the 20th century. And then, of course, World War II happened. World War II was a terrible disaster for Japan. They, they It absolutely ruined Japan. But after World War II, uh, the Japanese, uh, for a variety of reasons, uh, free technology, uh, a, a willing labor force, uh, currency to invest, things of this sort of became really an economic powerhouse until it became the second largest economy in the world around 2000. And now, of course, it's the third largest economy in the world behind, behind China, behind the United States and China. Interesting. So it's the third. I didn't know that. I, that's interesting. Um, go back to before 1600. Um, any fascinating wars or uh, stories that stand out? I just love uh, major figureheads and maybe some things that they did to overcome uh, the opposition. I love stories like 300 and uh, true stories that show few versus many or individuals who really stood up to, to corruption. Uh, well, um, there was someone who stood up against corruption who was named Sugawara no Michizane. And he, he, he lived around 900 and he was... He, he, he actually uh, was a good Confucian scholar, uh, mm-hmm. but he ran afoul of a family called the Fujiwara, and the Fujiwara caused, caused him to be banished, and he lost power, and he died, sort of, but he became a symbol of uh, the, the loyal and the competent minister. Wow. And so what year was that you said? 1,200? 900. 900. Wow. And you touched on samurai. I want to make sure we get into this. Uh, samurai, it, it, you said it it happened later later than I thought it was. That, that term, that phrase, that mentality. Can you give us a little bit of the origin on that? Uh, the origin of the samurai, uh, it depends. If you're talking just, first of all, you have to define what a samurai is. And a samurai is a lightly armored, uh, sword swinging, uh, bow and arrow shooting, 
horse horse rider. So he's actually they're actually mounted archers. Oh, I did. Okay. Okay. Different and, than I thought. Uh, Japan always had, had mounted archers from about 500 on, but they didn't really uh, become part of the the story of the samurai. Really, uh, you can trace the origins back fairly far, but um, the use of the term samurai is more and more frequent after 900. And then you have mounted archers, these mounted archers of samurai, the mounted archers, who square off with each other. They fight one-on-one, sort of like a knight. They fight one-to-one, and um, they try to get their opponent in a certain position where they can shoot the arrow into him. And um, so um, the samurai do that, and uh, there were samurai wars. There were wars... uh, Involving the court used the samurai for a long time as their police force. And, and then eventually the samurai got tired of not having any uh, political power, not having any uh, not having much economic power. And so in 1180, uh, they started a war and um, uh it ended up in 1185 and founded the first Japanese shogunate or Japanese military government. Wow. <laughs> so they were the police officers of their time and then they stood up for themselves and then they became what the, the military. That's right. Well, well, they always were the military. They would be used in wars and the court used them in wars, but they would use them as wars and then they would give them prizes. Oh, that's interesting. And, and, and eventually the samurai got tired of just receiving prizes. And uh, a very famous samurai named Minamoto no Yoritomo decided that he, he wanted to establish his own government for the samurai. And, and the court ceded to the samurai the rights to collect taxes and the rights to uh, defend the country. And... Uh, The new headquarters was found in Kamakura, which is a city that's about uh, uh, 30 or 40 miles away from Tokyo by train. Hmm. You can go there today. Well, this book is really about the social and economic history. What can we learn from Japanese social and economic history? Is there anything you're seeing repeat itself either in a positive or a negative way? Uh, well, as I said, in a negative way, uh, the epidemics. Uh, epidemics, uh, uh, disease came into Japan from outside, from the continent, and it came into Japan, and it would kill off a large number of people who did not have any immunities. And then uh, it would, like COVID, it would eventually burn itself out and not be that that bad anymore. But then... Uh, the disease would disappear and the next generation grew up and it didn't have any immunities either. And the disease would come back in again and once again, afflict the people. This, this caused the population in Japan to stabilize so that between uh, about 750 and about uh, 1300, the population of Japan hovered around uh, anywhere from five to 6 million. But it, ne- it never grew. And it was partly because of uh, the epidemics. It was partly because of the famines. 
There were also some very large famines in Japan, particularly in the 1200s. It killed a lot of people. So all those things happened. But in terms of lessons, um, really, Japan begins to get organized economically after 1300. And then you see the origins. Uh, and in the Togao period, which is 1600 to 1868, the economy really did well. The economy did quite well. And the amount of land under cultivation and the population grew for a while. And um, by, um, by 1600, the population that was 6 million in uh, 1300 was uh, 18 million. So it tripled. And this was because of better grains, better food, more consistent food, uh, better environment, less harsh weather, um, and um, advances in medicine, and a variety of things that helped lead Japan to the point where you get to the origins of uh, the pre-modern Japanese economic takeoff is uh, around 1300, maybe a little bit later than that. But going back to the origin of uh, the samurai, that might be the reason why the culture is built around a martial art, right? It seems like people, uh, whenever I interview them, if they come from uh, Japan or from China, martial arts is just a part of their their background. And I think that should be a part of anybody in the United States background too. So is there a reason for that? Were you able to kind of retrace the steps and how that became part of their DNA and, and how self-defense and maybe it does apply to the stoic approach where control your body, control your thoughts, you can control your life. Anything you can really relate to our audience? Well, I, I don't think that uh, you can say that. Uh, I would imagine uh, many Japanese do the martial arts, but not most. And I think that there is some influence of the samurai ethic on on the character of the Japanese, and they um, that that's that's where the uh, respect for others comes in. That's where uh, other things come in as well. Uh, but uh, the Japanese are really not all about fighting. Right now, they have a peace constitution, and they're threatened by China and North Korea, and the Japanese are quite frightened of that. Wow. Okay. So there is definitely a, 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 there's a, there's a bad blood between China and Japan at this stage. Uh, at what stage? At, at, as of right now. Is that what you're saying? Oh yeah. 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 Right now. Um, uh, it's interesting, but I went back to Japan in 2019 and the area I went to was the area around Tokyo university. And now it's all taken over by Chinese restaurants. And the Chinese immigrants have moved to Japan, and um, uh, the Japanese uh, are fearful of the Chinese because the Chinese, of course, want to take back Taiwan, and they also want uh, much more influence in the world. And um, it's sort of like the old phrase that was used of France and Europe. When China sneezes, Japan catches a cold. Wow. It's a good way to put it. Now, you have multiple books here. Uh, I think there's at least five. Is that right? You have, I think, at least five books written uh, on this same subject. Seven. 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 
And one of the ones that really caught my attention was um, Sacred Texts and Buried Treasures. Okay. Uh, so if you can kind of, this is 1998 you wrote this one, huh? That's right. And so can you relay anything from this? I saw that title and I'm like, oh, that's something I got to bring up. Sacred Texts and Buried Treasures. What is this one referring? Uh, it refers to what, what it is. It's a book that looks at uh, four problems in Japanese history. And those four problems have both written evidence and they also have archaeological evidence. So if you like Japanese archaeology, Sacred Texts and Buried Treasures is a book to go to. And it looks at, uh, it goes back as far as 250 CE, goes back to a, uh, a so-called empress of Japan who was called Imihimiko. Uh, and um, then um, it also talks about Japan's capitals and what we, and there's been a lot of digging on Japan's capitals. The other thing that's really interesting is that the Japanese have, is, is that you can learn a lot about the relationship between Korea and Japan by archeology. span and there's a big controversy about whether Japan dominated Southern Korea uh, during its early history. And uh, Japan and Korea were not on very friendly terms from 600 until 900, uh, never on completely friendly terms. And the Japanese considered them sort of uh, inferior in many ways. And then the book also talks about uh, this incredible archaeological source that's been uncovered, uh, they're, they're wooden tablets, and on the wooden tablets there's writing, and the writing gives us sources that we never never would have had otherwise. Hmm. So sa sacred texts and buried treasures is exactly as the title said. Sacred texts are there is a written evidence, buried treasures is the archaeological evidence, and it's all about uh, the two different kinds of evidence and how you can match them up or not match them up and what you can learn about Japan uh, in four different areas. Another book that we, uh, you guys might want to check out if you're into this subject is A Bull for a Coin, right? And I, I have heard about the medicinal purposes of uh, Japanese tea. It seems like you did a little bit of research on that in, for this book. And there's something you talk about where it says, Ferris maintains that the increasing sophistication of Japanese agriculture after 1350 is exemplified by tea farming, which became so advanced that the Meiji entrepreneurs were able to export significant amounts of Japanese tea to Euro-American markets. So can you tell us a little bit about this book? Yeah, not many of my guests have more than uh, two books. So this is, uh, this is great that you have uh, a wide variety. Okay, well, A Bowl for a Coin is really the story of uh, tea in Japan, and it, it purports to uh, describe the history of tea in Japan from its origins around 750 all the way up until the present. And one thing that you might find really interesting is for those of your, your listeners who are interested in modern Japanese history is that tea was the second most important export of the Meiji government uh, after uh, 1850. Uh, the Japanese exported a huge amount of tea uh, to other countries, and that's how they made their capital. And then they took that capital and used it and invested in industry and developed uh, industry from that. Sil silk was a leading export, but then tea was second. And one of the major customers for Japanese tea was, Amer was America. Mm. How how did it become so big? Is it simply because they have 
certain plants over there that we just don't. I mean, I, that that's fascinating to me that that became export number two. Silk, I understand, but tea? Uh, tea, as I say, tea, tea is an invasive species in Japan. It invaded Japan sometime around 750. And for a long time, uh, it was just a minor drink and it was only drunk by the elite. And so the people who would drink it would be aristocrats or samurai, but not the common people. But beginning around 1300, around this time that I mentioned, that's such a big change in Japanese history, tea began to be sold on the streets and by peddlers. And it be, there were a number of improvements in the farming of tea that took place. And it became more and more widespread uh, until you get to the Togao period, which is after 1600. And tea has grown very widely in Japan. And um, uh, the country really goes crazy for the drinking of tea. Hmm. It's interesting because when when Japan and China and Korea and Vietnam were drinking tea and when uh, the Arabs were drinking coffee, the Europeans had no drink. They, they drank water. They either drank wine or they drank water. And tea... Tea is imported to Europe, uh, and coffee is imported to Europe. They all come from outside of the, that, and then the Europeans eventually established markets so that they could trade something for coffee or tea. Mm-hmm. The first, the first tea to go to Europe went to Europe around 1600, but not very much of it. You really don't get a big export tr- trade in Japanese tea until after uh, 1850. And then, as I say, it's interesting because one of the major customers was America, and they were drinking green tea. There are barns here where I live in Illinois that have advertisements on them for Japanese green tea. <laughs> wow. Came across the, 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 the oceans, and people were advertising for Japanese tea on barns back in what year, probably? What, what, what year is that? Uh, Every all the time from 1870 until about 1930. Once once the Japanese military took over, Americans began to boycott Japanese tea and never really came back. Mm. But now it's now it's more important again. And now you're getting uh, companies like uh, Itoen in Hawaii that uh, where if you go to Hawaii, you can buy green tea and uh, big packages and drink green tea, and it's quite delicious. One last book I want to bring up, and I think the cover is is wild. Uh, Japan's medieval population: famine, fertility, and warfare in a transform transform transformative age. Choice outstanding academic books. I guess is the publisher. Uh, but this book right here, tell us a little bit about this and the cover that you chose. This is cool, guys. Look it up. Why did you make that the cover? Uh, it's a cover because. The book is, one of the main themes of the book is about famine. And on the cover, what you see are uh, the Japanese were so afraid of famine. This would have been all during the period. There were bad famines in Japan, even in the 1830s. And um, so uh, eventually in the, uh, I believe it was sometime around 1150 or 1200, they made a scroll called the Hungry Ghost Scroll. 
And what you see on the cover of that book are pictures of hungry ghosts. And if you notice, their stomachs are large and they look really gruesome. Yeah. And these are these are ghosts of people who have starved to death from famine. Oh, yeah, it's creepy, man. That's it catches your attention for sure. So, in is was that their biggest fear, basically starving to death? Well, uh, for a while it was disease, but eventually the Japanese overcame their fear of disease and um, the, the epidemics died down. But when the epidemics died down, the population grew, but they didn't have enough food to feed the people. And so there were terrible famine. There was a terrible famine in 1230. There was another terrible famine in 1260. There was another terrible famine in uh, 1450 or 1460, and uh, terrible famine in uh, 1780s uh, and 90s. And uh, famine, if you if you notice. Uh, it, it's been recent. If you if you look at Shohei Otani, I mean he is he's a big fella. Shohei Otani is a big fella, and he has to be to be able to hit all those home runs and do both pitch and to also hit home runs. But prior to that, during the Meiji period, prior to that, prior to 1900, the Japanese were smaller, uh, and their body weight was less, and their height was shorter. And that's all because uh, food was relatively scarce. Got it. And last question I have for you, whenever it comes to the origin of your love for Japan, I know you said you, you've lived there for over six years total. Is that right? Mm -hmm. um, was there a defining moment or something that you read or you saw or you have an experience with an individual that really made you curious about this culture and this 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 part of the world. Um, anything that stands out whenever you were a kid? Uh, I, when I was a child, I wasn't interested in Japan. When I, I wasn't interested in Japan until I went to undergraduate school. I went to undergraduate school at DePaul University in Indiana. And there, then you have, there are several things that stimulated my interest in Japan. One was I had a really excellent, excellent professor. His name was Clifton Phillips. And he was, he got me really interested in Japan. And then the second thing was we had Japanese language at DePaul. And I took Japanese language and I, it was my first spoken language. So I learned to speak Japanese while I was in Indiana. And then the third thing was in December of 1971, when I was still only 20 years old, I went to Japan for a year and two months, and I studied at Sophia University in Japan. And uh, there, uh, I just really fell in love with the culture. Uh, I had a Japanese girlfriend, uh, had lots of things going on, and... Um, it was uh, a completely transformative uh, experience. If there's one aspect of the Japanese culture that you would love for the Western culture to adopt, what is it? Uh, respect for the for the other person. Yeah, you don't see that too much anymore around here. <laughs> no, 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 uh, and respect for your elders. And what I realize is Japanese culture, they respect their elders. It's almost like the... Uh, you know, they, they, they that was the, the individual who ran the family, right? And um, I don't know if you see that as much anymore. 
Yeah, uh, you you have uh, you do have more respect for the elders, and you have a very good system of social support in Japan for elderly people. And of course, the Japanese population is growing old very rapidly, and the population of Japan is beginning to shrink. Jeez, because you got so many old people, and young people are not interested in having children anymore, and so the population of Japan is shrinking. Same things happening with Korea. Same things happening with China. And here, uh, people are not having kids as much. Yep, it's happening. And, and it, it, the population of the United States is not shrinking, but it's about stable. It, basically, basically, the reason our population increases is because we have immigrants. Yeah, that's exactly right. So without the immigrants, we would be shrinking. That's right. Man, great conversation. Guys, I, I recommend if you're into you know, understanding a little bit more about Japanese history, he obviously knows his stuff. William Ferris, he has seven books on the topic. They're all on Japanese history, right? They're all on Japanese history. That's right. Yep. And the book that we specifically focused on was Japan to 1600, a social and economic history. Uh, I think your most popular is probably, let me see here. I think the one that has the most, the, a bull for a coin seems like the most popular one. So now the, the T, T, T book really hit a nerve. Yeah. People love that. It's over 60 reviews. So they're tough to get. So uh, great work, man. Um, to get a hold of you, is it uh, is there a channel, a website or anything that um, you recommend uh, I, for people to look up? I have no website. Uh, the best way to get a hold of me is through my email. Okay. Uh, is, is it okay to get my email address here? Or? Yeah, please, please uh, list it out. Most people who listen to this or who actually receive our podcast do it via audio through Spotify. So please do that. Yeah. Okay. Um, one way you can, you can look me up is to go to, I was a professor at the University of Hawaii for 12 years. And so if you go to the University of Hawaii and then look up uh, retired faculty, I'll be on that list and my email address will be there. But for just to give you my email address, it is wferris, F-A-R-R-I-S, at hawaii.edu. Excellent. So if you are putting on a seminar, event, or a podcast that uh, your audience would love to learn more about Japanese culture, uh, he's your guy. So I really appreciate your time. And, um, you know, this is one subject I don't know much about, but I'm curious about it. So uh, thanks for opening my eyes to some things today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the chance to advertise my writings. And maybe it will uh, increase the interest in the books. I hope so. You know, in school, we don't know much about Japanese culture, right? Because of World War II history, we learn a little bit there, but we study extensively as kids in Egyptian culture, right? And some other cultures, but not so much Japanese. And I think that, uh, uh, yeah. I think it's, it's interesting to, uh, have somebody give us a little bit of a background. So really appreciate your time. And remember guys, a million dollar book will lead to a million dollar life right on.